we come back to our studies in the book of 2 Corinthians within our wider study of the Pauline letters. And it's always a comfort to know that when we come to portions of Paul's letters that are hard to explain, that inspiration has that part of our experience covered. That uh, Peter, in writing his second letter, uh, speaks of the writings of Paul in that very way, in which our brother Paul has written to you, uh, some things which are difficult to understand, hard to explain, and which the unlearned and unstable rest as they do the other scriptures to their own uh, destruction. And uh, things that are difficult to explain often are in areas that have to do with eschatology, things that are future. It's almost as if the Lord, um, in giving us in his word, uh, things about the end times or things to come, what is our ultimate destiny, where are we all going, where, where is it all heading. Um, he's very, the Lord is very sparing in the information that is given. He gives us sufficient information for our faith to feed upon. But he doesn't give us exhaustive information so that we would know uh, more, more than is needed. Uh, many, many things in Scripture were given great detail on how these things are and how these things work. Um, but with respect to things particularly like what we uh, call the intermediate state, the state of the believer after death, uh, before the resurrection, we have hints that are given. I mean, they're clear hints. There is such a condition as being absent from the body. There is such a condition of departing and desiring to be with Christ that is far better. And it doesn't seem that those are expressions that speak of the resurrection from the dead. When Paul speaks of the resurrection from the dead, he's usually more clear about the fact of the resurrection, of the fact that the dead in Christ will rise. And he has a vocabulary that's clearly able to convey the reality of the resurrection from the dead. But it doesn't seem that 2 Corinthians 5 is that portion of his writings. Um, Although there are expressions that do seem to indicate some aspect of resurrection faith, uh, such as uh, that which is death, uh, that which is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Uh, that's something that does pertain to the resurrection because the body is mortal. And the body will be planted as a mortal body, raised an immortal body. And so when we think about the way in which God gives life to his people, we, we tried to spend a week last week in which we gave something of the bigger picture of uh, the history of um, the human race, created from the hand of God, a bipartite being, comprised of both a body and something that, and that body comes from the earth, just like the sea creatures, let the seas, well, let the swarm swarm, is actually the Hebrew of it, we say let the seas swarm, it's actually not the word for seas in the Hebrew, it's let the swarm swarm, the stuff that swarms in the sea, let it swarm and let it bring forth the fish, and then let the, um, the uh, earth bring forth uh, life from the earth, this life that comes forth from the earth. And our humanity is also uh, part of the earth. God took dust from the ground and formed a man. So our formation in terms of our body has a connection with the earth as all the other animals do. But there's another aspect of our humanity that doesn't come from the earth at all. It comes from the very breath of God. That God, having formed the man dust from the ground, then that work of spiration, he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. 
And as a result of both of those actions, man becomes a living creature. Not the same kind of living creature that the animals were. They too are called living creatures, but their derivation and origin is wholly different. They're simply um, things that God took from the earth and the sea. And uh, there's that which comes right from the mouth of God, directly from uh, the spiration of God breathing into the man uh, the breath of life. And so when death comes, uh, when God says to the man, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, dying you will die, that when the death of the man takes place, it doesn't take place all at once. He doesn't die that moment. Um, we didn't have you here to tell me exactly how long Adam lived. You only have to go to Genesis 5. Okay. I know the passage, but to not look it up, but just because we have a, a resident obituary expert who even goes back to Adam. <laughs> he was over 900 years. The exact one, I don't know. 930. There you go. 930 years. So. I know you made the call last week. So. Um, It took a while for the body to die. But yet death came in. And death came in in the way that Paul describes it in the book of Ephesians 4 when he speaks of being alienated from the life of God. Death is separation and we're alienated or separated from the life of God. And that was registered in all the things we see that the man did differently than he formerly did, fleeing from God's presence rather than running towards God, not desiring communion with him, accusing his wife rather than saying bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And so there was the death of the soul. And so then there's the death of the body that takes place afterwards. And when God comes and he brings the reversal of the curse and he brings life where death once reigned through our Lord Jesus Christ, just as death doesn't happen all at once, so life doesn't happen all at once, at least in all of its fullness. And as I tried to point out last time, is that um, life begins in the believer. Uh, this whole matter of life imparted through the gospel, it begins where death began. Death brought the, the inner life, the soul, the spirit, that which came from God, to become separated from God. And when life comes, we're reunited in our spirits with the living God through what we call regeneration. And so the first part of this life impartation through the gospel is our regeneration. When we are born of God. When we're born of the Spirit. And uh, we come back to God to worship and to, and to serve Him. And what God gives life to at regeneration can never die. There's an aspect of our humanity that is immortal as a result of the life-giving power of God. Death cannot reign where life has come. Life from God. And so when Jesus speaks of himself as the resurrection and the life, he says, he who lives and believes in me will never die. Well, how could that be if we die? And if in our death, of the death of the body, that means at least the death of the soul until the resurrection, uh, then that can't be true. But there's an aspect of our humanity that never dies. God is the God of the, of the, of the living, not of the dead, Jesus says. And though he spoke that in answer to the dispute about the resurrection, 
Uh, the fact of God being the God of the living would indicate that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in some aspect of their being, still live. There's some aspect of their humanity that remains. And when regeneration comes, there is the life-giving power of God that brings us back to God and unites the soul with God, and that never perishes. Um, Paul uses the language that the body is dead because of sin. The spirit is life because of righteousness. So he's telling us the body dies, but the spirit doesn't. At death, the spirit goes to be with God. And so that's really the second part of this importation of life. And that takes place in what we call uh, the... um, The intermediate state? Is that what we call it? The intermediate state. Yeah, I don't know why my brain is not functioning. But this intermediate state um, between death and resurrection, where what happens there in regeneration, uh, there's life that's given to the soul or the spirit. It's in this intermediate state at death, where death takes place, the death of the body, that there is the perfection of the soul. And so this intermediate state, we have the perfection of the soul. The spirit is perfected in righteousness. And hence we have the mention of the spirits of just men made perfect. So the spirit of man is, or the believer, is perfected at death. And then there is ultimate resurrection of the body. And then there is the perfection and life of the whole man, of body and soul together in the presence of God eternally, in a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So that's how life is imparted to the soul and the body, and not all at the same time. And it does seem to me that there's something of that framework in which we're to understand 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because, um, again, when you have eschatology, future things, last things spoken of in scripture it's usually uh, given very metaphorically there are images that are presented and there's images in this passage, there's the image of the house eternal in the heavens that we have this building from God so there's the language of the building there's an habitation uh, that's from God, it's eternal in the heavens and even there you have something that doesn't come out from the earth. It comes directly from God. There is a habitation from God. And that habitation of God is the very temple of God, the very meeting place where believers meet with God. It's coming into the presence of God. In the language of absent from the body, present with the Lord. We come to be in God's presence as a dwelling place. That God encompasses us with his presence. It's not a literal building. Again, we're talking about the perfection of souls and spirits. It's not material. There's not a material house we go into. It's a figure of a house. It's a dwelling place. Uh, again, the temple, the tabernacle that was built upon the earth, um, and it was, it was built upon the earth to be a reflection of heavenly realities, it was called a tent of meeting. It's the place where... God met with Moses. That God met with Israel in that tent of meeting. It was a dwelling place of God, and it was a tent of meeting. Well, there's a dwelling place of God in heaven that's also a place of meeting. It's a place where we go in our spirits that have been made alive through the gospel, that have been regenerated, 
to meet with God, to be encompassed with the presence of God, awaiting the resurrection of the last day. And um, another picture is given, that's the picture of clothing. The picture of clothing and of uh, nakedness. And Paul speaks of language that he, he uses in Romans about the whole creation groaning, awaiting the redemption of the, of the children of God or the sons of God. <clears throat> and that redemption, of course, is the resurrection. It's the adoption, the resurrection of the body. Um, and so there's that longing for sin to be completely expunged from the universe of um, that time when all the curse will be lifted and the uh, creation that was subject to sin or subject to vanity uh, by uh, the will of the God who placed this this curse uh, upon the sinful world will lift the curse in the time of the liberation of the universe and the uh, liberation of the sons of God in the presence of God. And this language of groaning is found here. Uh, We're groaning for perfection. We're groaning for the lifting of the curse. We're groaning for the time when we are with God with unimpeded uh, delight in his presence and joy in his presence. And I think part of that comes at the point of death, when this tent that is our earthly home is dissolved or destroyed. When we die, we have that heavenly Dwelling, We have that meeting place with God who encompasses us with his own presence. Um, but yet there is this language that says, if indeed by putting it on, you may not be found naked. Now, a state of nakedness, of course, we usually think of in the body. The body needs to be clothed. But yet the state of nakedness is also a state of shame. Remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were made in the you know, placed in the garden, and chapter two ends with the note that they were naked and not ashamed. There was the full exposure of their humanity before one another, and there was nothing to hide. There was nothing devious. There was nothing corrupt. There was nothing sinful. There was perfection in them, and there was nothing to be ashamed about. And then when sin entered in, they knew they were naked, and what they were, they fled. From God's presence. Shame enters in. And shame enters in where sin is. And you know, even in the presence of God as glorified souls, there's something not quite complete. There's something that is part of our humanity that's missing and absent. Because we were not created to be disembodied spirits, to dwell in the presence of God. Nor is it just in case that we should only be concerned well, we made it out of the earth with our spirits saved to go to be with Christ eternally. And then the rest of the world can just go its way and uh, that's fine with me. I have the Lord. I have glory. I have perfection of my soul. I'm part of the spirits of just men made perfect. Hooray for me. You see, the ambition of the child of God is not just what benefits us. Again, the uh, souls of the righteous that were beheaded in the book of Revelation a picture of them being under the altar in Revelation chapter 6 and they're crying out, how long O Lord? I mean they're already dead they've gone to be with the Lord they're kept under the altar they're kept in, in God's uh, under, under God's care and protection 
And yet their concern is about what's going on in the earth. How long will you allow uh, these conditions to, con- to exist before uh, the blood of the righteous is avenged? How long? Um, and they're concerned about more than themselves. They're concerned about the stuff that's going on in the earth. And the Lord, of course, tells them they're to rest a while until the rest of the saints, uh, they finish their testimony and they're martyred or whatever. Uh, life on earth will continue. And there's to be the completion of the church, the completion of the work of bringing the message of salvation uh, to the world. And then ultimately, it culminates in the general resurrection and the judgment of the last day, in which all sin is completely expunged from the kingdom. All iniquity is outside, not inside. And that's the state and condition in which God's glory is revealed in all the earth. If you think of the vision of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 where the angels and seraphim are the burning ones around his throne and they're crying one to another and they're saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. I mean that's the hope. That's the picture. That's the ambition of the saints. That time when the whole earth is filled with his glory or as it says in Isaiah chapter 11 Um, that the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And you know, prophecy with that kind of vision and ambition of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. We want to see God governing the world. We want to see God's glory in all the earth. We want to see the knowledge of the Lord fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. That a book with that kind of ambition that runs through the whole of its teaching culminates in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells where sin is expunged and God reigns over all creation and so it's that part of eschatology, that's, that's that part of the end thing, of the end times, that doesn't just benefit us but it brings glory to God it brings all the earth to be filled with his glory it brings the fullness of his perfection to be seen in all the earth, all of his enemies defeated under his feet and the kingdom restored to the father that's the picture of eschatology in which every Christian has a vested interest not just in me but in the kingdom and the kingdom's affairs that will culminate in the resurrection of the dead and the judgment of the last day And that's the reason the biblical focus of our hope, of our groaning, of our yearning, of our desire, is always fixed upon the second coming. It's always fixed upon not our own death and going to be with Jesus. That's not the end of the story. That's not ultimate. That's a stop along the way. You haven't yet reached your destination. The destination is not reached until the second coming, until the resurrection of the dead, until the judgment of the world, until the perfection of the kingdom and righteousness, when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven from God. That's God's creation. That's God's new creation coming in its fullness to this earth so that the whole um, world becomes a new creation. And so what Paul, I think, is doing is he's speaking in terms of that ultimate desire that yearning, that groaning that ambition, that end of nakedness, 
the end of sin. Um, and so, I, though I think he definitely is talking about the intermediate state, and that's what I called it there, didn't it? Intermediate state. I left out the R. I don't know when I was writing that before, it wasn't making sense to me. I think it's the fact that we partied too much yesterday at the wedding. But uh, yeah, the intermediate state, um, again, that might benefit us, but we want more. We long for more. And we long for that ultimate time when that, when that which is mortal, he says, and um, that's in the words of verse 4. He says, while we are still in this tent, as before we die, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, not that we would be just divested of our bodies in the presence of the Lord, um, but that we would be further clothed. And it's interesting, the ESV uses the term further clothed. It's almost as if whatever God does in encompassing us in terms of our soul Souls going to be with him after death, there's something still further to be seen. I'm not exactly sure that's the way the word should be translated, but it's interesting the translators thought it should, that there's not just that first clothing that meets us at death, but there's a further clothing that's to be realized when it says, um, when that which is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And that's language, that's resurrection language in 1 Corinthians 15. That which is mortal becomes swallowed up by life. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Death is swallowed up uh, by life at the resurrection. So there's a continuum between this intermediate state and the ultimate state. It's along the same line. But when we come here to the intermediate state, we've not yet arrived at the destination. And it's just sad that throughout the history of the church, we've all put the emphasis uh, here in the intermediate state of dying and going to be with Jesus. That's reflected in so many of the hymns. And um, it's not really the full picture that scripture gives. And it's not that this has ever been denied in the church, the resurrection and the new heavens and new earth. It's just that um, I'm not exactly sure why we've so focused on the intermediate state. It's not really the main focus of scripture but it's not as if the scriptures made no mention of it there is such a condition and state as absent from the body present with the Lord there is that encompassing of God's presence of the soul at death but it's always incomplete it's always looking for something greater it's always looking for the ultimate end the end of the line which is the resurrection of the dead Tim so when we pray you know, now, like a prayer meeting and stuff, that, um, that, Lord, that your glory would be made known by the gospel throughout all the earth. We're thinking it as a now time, but there's an element of it where we should be thinking that ultimately God's glory will be, uh, all the nations will be under his domain and that heavenly state. Well, it's interesting you say that in terms of prayer, when the Lord's Prayer clearly would state that. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, you know, again, what we see at any given point in history are movements of the Spirit of God, the bringing of people to himself, and we see kingdom advance. We see kingdom growth. We see the kingdom spreading more and more in the earth. But the ultimate end of that prayer 
is that the earthly condition would mirror the heavenly condition where all rebellion would cease where all resistance to the rule of God and his grace would be at an end and that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea so again it's not that we don't pray for the uh, you know, gradual increase of the kingdom we do but always with that uh, more distant end at, at hand now, just as we take comfort in the fact that there is this uh, more immediate destiny of ourselves at death but we look for something more look for a time in a resurrection body we don't have to think about the aches and pains that you get to experience when you are pushing your way towards the seven, your 70th year on the earth I don't have to worry about uh, cataract surgery I don't have to worry about uh, the decaying of my teeth and the need to get repairs done I don't, that's not going to be part of our worries in the new heavens and new earth there's going to be the resurrection body, which is going to be a body like his own glorious body. So that's something to, to look forward to. And it's always a reminder of the reality of living in a fallen world. When we have all these bodily pains and all these sicknesses and death as, a, as that great reality. Uh, but ultimately the end of the story is that ultimate destiny that we long for and groan for. That's creation itself is groaning for that end, Paul says in Romans 8. Interesting, he uses the very same language. Now let's uh, go back to the fact that all of this teaching is being given by Paul in explanation of his ministry. And the attacks that were made on his ministry, because, you know, look at poor Paul, going through all of this, these hardships he's going through. Um, and uh, Paul's making it clear that he is not uh, on board with that assessment of things, uh, because he sees in his sufferings something of the reality of the glory of the excellency of his power being revealed in us. Uh, this treasure is in earthly vessels or in um, vessel uh, jars of clay that the excellency of the power might be, be seen to be of God. That it's ultimately God's power that is at work in us that is sustaining us. And so though we are persecuted, we are not uh, despairing, we're not giving up, we're, we're facing all these things and we're being renewed inwardly day by day, even as this outer man is, is decaying. And, and Paul's confidence is that the worst that the people of the world can do to us is kill us. And so even if that happens, that's not altogether terrible for the Christian because that does speak to the issue of that future with God, that soulish existence and ultimately the bodily existence that will be lived in the presence of God. And so at the end of the story, as those who have such a hope, and those who have that hope being given to us in a down payment by the Spirit, we're of good courage. We're of good courage. Whatever our detractors would say, whatever the super apostles would say, whatever the assessment of other people are about us, uh, we have the promise of God. We have the knowledge of our future destiny. And we live in good courage. Uh, we know, he says in the words of verse 6, that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Uh, we are being persecuted. We are being hounded. We are being reviled. We are being mistreated. We are suffering loss and lack and harm and hardship on every hand. And um, though by faith God's present with us, he says, for we walk by faith, not by sight, 
Um, yet the reality is we're dealing with all these earthly realities. We have a God sustaining us through it, but um, we are of good courage. And in the midst of the struggles and trials and tribulations of this life, even though by faith we have something of a sight of God in the face of Jesus Christ, yet we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Away from these privations. Away from these indignities that we're experiencing. Away from these troubles. Now he knows these are being used of God to... uh, bring him to a, a, a far more exceeding and uh, eternal weight of glory, um, but yet you know, you get weary down and there would be the desire to be with the Lord. But he says, either way, again back to the Philippian letter, he's in this uh, bind between two things, two things he desires, one thing is to depart and to be with Christ, which he says is very far better and then he says, but to remain in the flesh is more needful for you there's a sense of obligation to the mission there's a sense of obligation to the stewardship he's been given of God for the sake of the people he is called upon to labor uh, uh, for in the building of the church. Uh, and that, then there's also the reality of the presence of God to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Um, so what's the best thing? He's in, he did, hardly can say. For him to live as Christ, to die as gain. And, uh, you know, if, if Christ is honored in his death, so be it. If he's going to be released from prison and serve the people of God further, so be it. Regardless of either way, he says, um, whether we are at home or away, is his language in verse 9. Whether we are at home or away, whether we're in uh, the body or in the presence, we make it our aim to please him. That's the end. That's the goal. That's the obligation. That's the ethical obligation that comes upon the people of God who have been given life from above, where life has been imparted to us through the gospel. Whatever condition we are in along this line of being living saints, every part of that continuum, what's the goal? Be pleasing to Him. I was in that church and made people say things. I'd say, what's the goal? To be pleasing to Him. That's your response. To be pleasing to Him. So when you get up every morning and you say, what's the goal for today? To be pleasing to Him. That's the goal. To be pleasing to Him. That's Paul's ambition. And that's his ambition because he knows the reality of a life-giving God who's imparted life to Him through the Gospel. A life that he presently possesses in his soul, in his spirit, in his inner life, that's being renewed day by day. A life that will be perfected in his presence at death. And a life that will be lived eternally in a resurrection body, in a new heavens and new earth. And every part along the way. What's the mission, child of God? To be pleasing unto him. Whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to, be pl- to please Him. And then he brings in another aspect of eschatology that also impinges upon the ethical life of the believer is the reality that there's going to be a day of assessment before God. 
God is a God who's going to assess this work of new creation that he's done. Um, You know, God blesses us, and then he blesses his blessing. And this is what he's going to do in the day of, of judgment for the believer. So that the day of judgment for the believer is not a, a threat. It's not something that uh, cripples him with uh, fear. I, I want that day to be forever postponed. Again, an unbeliever, when you talk to him that God's appointed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness, his response would be, may that day never come. May that day never come. If it was up to him, if we were to have a vote, let's have a, a, a plebiscite. Uh, the question on the ballot is, should God judge the world? I think there'd be an overwhelming response, no, may God never judge the world. Thumbs down on may God judge the world. But for the Christian, the judgment throne is not something to fear, it's something to welcome, because that's the day that God himself will declare his own work in us as his people. He who has begun a work in us, who perfected unto the day of Christ, will declare the perfection of his own work as we come before him. Now it's a daunting thing to think about. Again, it's something we've never experienced before. We've never experienced the returning Christ coming in judgment and all the world called before that judgment throne and that work of assessment that goes on. Imagine to judge billions of people um, that have lived in this world. Um, again, people that don't think Jesus is God, to think the thought that he's, he's going to be the judge. We will stand, he says, before the judgment seat of Christ. Christ is going to be the presiding judge. And for any judge to render judgment, he has to know the fullness of the facts, doesn't he? If a judge is going to make judgment upon a case, he has to know every aspect of the, of the case. Uh, and uh, when we stand before Christ in judgment, he knows every, every aspect of the case of every human being that's ever lived on the face of the earth that comes before him. Because he's going to render a just judgment. He's going to render a judgment that's in righteousness. But it's at this judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now that good or evil part is not a question of the Christian doing evil. Again, it's not to say Christians never do evil. But it is to say that this judgment is a righteous judgment, but it's also a judgment of a God who has graciously provided salvation in his Son. And, you know, you look at the Old Testament and you see assessments that God has made upon the characters of people in the Old Testament. And you know those people are not perfect people. You know that David was not a perfect person. And yet, in the book of the Kings, you're often reading, and more particularly in the book of Chronicles, some, somehow the book of Chronicles seems to have a bit of amnesia with respect to the faults of the kings of Judah. The book of Kings will tell more about the sins of the kings of Judah. But even in the book of Kings, David comes across as a man who pleased God. He comes across as a man who is after God's own heart. He comes across as a man who has served God uh, Faithfully, and sometimes it'll say, except in the matter of Uriah. Now, calling to mind, of course, David, Bathsheba, and the murder of Uriah. So the Bible knows that David committed 
sinful acts. That God judged him for sinful acts. And yet the judgment that God makes is a judgment that is marked by grace. It's marked more by the fact that God is viewing in David the righteous acts that he performed. And righteous acts that he performed that would never have been performed but by the fact of God's grace. That God made him to be a living saint. And so it's not so much that when we come before the judgment throne as believers that God's going to point to all of our sins for which we've often hung our head and for which we've often cried many tears of penitence. What he's going to point to are the righteous acts of the saints that would never have been there apart from his grace. And he'll say to all the moral universe, look at that. Look at my, look at my child and how that child honored me and sought to please me and made it his aim every day to be well-pleasing in my sight. To me, that's the, more the assessment of what's going on here. The things that are evil are the things that were done by the persecutors. Or the things that were done by the people that were not God's people who persecuted and afflicted and brought misery to the lives of God's people, they too will give an account for the deeds that are done in the body. And so this is the picture of the general resurrection and judgment of the last day. I know there are people that look to take the fact that the the throne is described as the Bema seat and they try to make a difference between that and the great white throne judgment. I would tell you there's no difference at all. The same issues are at stake. The same judge is on the throne. The same matters are before the court at that judgment throne where assessment is made. Um, It's the same issues you find in Matthew 25. So, though different words used, that doesn't mean a different thing altogether. That's just a strange way to treat the scriptures when you find a different usage of a word and then say, oh, that's talking about a completely different event than the other thing. Well, no, no. It's talking about the same thing. Just, uh, again... Um, they just think that the uh, great white throne judgment is strictly for the unbeliever. And that the, but the righteous are there, too. But they would, of course, they would they, say... They, that they, they would not say that. They would say that the demons Well, they would say the great white throne is for the righteous acts of the Jews during the tribulation or the... Yeah. I'm not getting that from people I've talked to. Well, but you do have Jesus saying to those on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, into the kingdom prepared for you. Again, they're, they're thinking that's the other line. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Again, they're just ignoring that whole part of Matthew 25, if they would say that. There has to be something of uh, faithful believers there whether it's tribulation saints or something else. Again, that's a whole system of ideas that I think is very foreign uh, to the word of God. Um, But I don't think we have to trouble ourselves with systems that are just, I mean, they're they're well-intentioned systems. They're systems that have been devised by believers, very desirous of uh, being faithful to the word of God. It's just a misunderstanding of the text of scripture. When you just find a different word, you decide, well, that means something different. And then you assign it to whatever um, your own timeline is with respect to history. No, that doesn't fly. Um, But there is this judgment that, again, affects the believer uh, and affects the unbeliever because there is those who do evil. And it's not just the believing believers that do evil. You know, that all that come before the judgment seat of Christ, it could mean all believers, but I think it's talking about all people, certainly in a context in which Paul has taken comfort from the fact that um, 
persecutors are bringing all manner of trouble against the people of God. And the picture of the comfort of the saints is that when Christ returns to be glorified in the saints, you know what he's going to do? He's going to bring affliction to those that afflict you. That's the second... Thessalonians chapter 1. He'll bring affliction to those that afflict you. So this is the righteous judgment of God described in Romans 2, Matthew 28, uh, first, uh, second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1. Um, but at any rate, uh, arising, out, arising out of that um, uh, understanding of that assessment at the judgment throne before the Lord Jesus Christ, um, it brings a solemnization to the hearts of God's people to regulate our lives in the light of that judge with whom we have to do. Now again, the judge is a judge we know. A judge who, to whom we've been reconciled. And he's going to talk about a ministry of reconciliation. We've been reconciled to that judge. But we also know when we will appear before him, just the very thought will come into his presence. Just the very thought that we live in his presence produces what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. The fear of God. And that's what Paul's describing. He's describing the kind of life that's lived in the fear of God, that has regard to the presence that will be ours at death. The presence that is even ours in life as we see um, Christ, um, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, uh, and that presence that will meet us at the judgment throne that our lives are to be regulated by the reality of the divine presence. And that's the fear of God. That's the regard for the presence of God that we are destined for. The presence of God that will meet us at the judgment throne. And so Paul says, knowing the presence of God. And now he's moving back to the ministry. Now he's never really left the thought of the ministry. He's been talking about his ministry. He's been talking about the things that motivate him in the face of tribulation, persecution, and affliction for the sake of the gospel. But now he's moving back to the active engagement that Paul um, is involved in in his ministry as an apostle to the nations. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, what's the end of that? We persuade others. It's our concern to bring others to know this God whom we have come to fear because they're going to come before the throne. You see, if only believers are before this throne of judgment he's describing, why bother with the unbelievers if they're not going to really come before that throne at all? Or maybe they'll come in a different throne at a different time. But he's connecting this particular throne of judgment with this missionary ambition, this commitment to seek to bring the message of grace to others that they would be prepared for divine presence. They would be prepared to meet with God. They would be prepared to come before the th- judgment throne. And so we persuade others. But then he sort of backs away again. And you know, again, a lot of what he's saying is in reaction to the things that his opponents at Corinth have been saying about him. And again, Paul is concerned, as he said previously in chapter 4, that we do not proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Christ as Lord and our, ourselves as your servants for, for Jesus' sake. And it's almost when Paul gets too much involved in himself and his 
ministry, too much of the attention is drawn to him. He 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 does uh, draw back, draw back, uh, and he says, um, "But what we are is known to God." You know, I'm, I'm done looking to plead for me. <laughs> you know, my concern is to persuade others. But as for me, what we are is known to God. And I hope it's known to you also in your conscience. And so don't misunderstand me. He says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. And we're done declaring our, our praises and our merits. We just want you to know that what we do, we do in the sincerity of the gospel. <laughs> we want you to know that what we do is because we fear God. What we do is because we aim to please Him. We're not ambitious for ourselves. We're not toot our own horns. We're not um, looking to get a claim among you. The best, we're giving you cause to boast about us. We're not going to do the boasting. Again, the proverb says, uh, praise not yourself, but let, it, let it, others praise you. So he's not about to pra- continue long in this uh, praising of himself. He feels this is getting too much about him. And uh, you can feel that Paul's sensibility uh, about that in the text, that, that the glory belongs to the Lord, not to him. So he's very careful uh, to kind of pull back and say, don't misunderstand me. This is not what this is all about. This is not Paul praising Paul. This is Paul praising what God has done in him and through him and the perspectives of the grace of the gospel that uh, he has come to understand and receive. He says, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, but not about what is in the heart. That's the heart. That's, that's the key issue between Paul and the false teachers in Corinth is that the false teachers were all about outward appearance now look at poor Paul look at what he's going through look at the trials and tribul- tribulations and the troubles if he was a real apostle of Jesus would the Lord allow him to go through those things you know it's outward appearance that's what they're concerned about and again we live in a world in which the church is consumed with outward appearance how we appear I got some conversation with a fellow, well-meaning guy, at the wedding about this whole matter of uh, you know, churches that basically adopt the uh, business plans of the world and how the um, church is to get marketed and uh, just uh, this whole matter of um, how we just uh, expand uh, ourselves. And my, my observation to him, which he did not deny, was when churches gain that sort of a mentality, the tendency is to pull back upon the preaching of the whole counsel of God and to provide a message that's more acceptable to the masses. Because that's who you're looking to woo. That's who you're looking to draw in. And so you're looking to find proven methods of getting a crowd together. And uh, so that usually then moves into the area of means of doing that, which in our culture is highly invested in, in entertainment and such. Or ministries for the families or um, ways to help you live a better life and uh, get a, have a better marriage and do this thing better or that thing better have, have great kids and have your, your best life now and all of that uh, to so, sort of like Christian self-help um, people are concerned about appearance you know we have um, folks that came to the wedding who said they would come and visit us this morning they may for the morning worship 
But, you know, we might be self-conscious. Here we are, a group of people. We've been laboring here for years and years in Pinebush. Look at the people that have come. Just a few that are here. And the appearance doesn't look good. The optics aren't good. I mean, let's face it, the optics aren't good when visitors come. It's a small church. Um, I usually tell people, if everybody that left the church had stayed, it would be a very big church. But I think that would be true of most churches. But um, we should not be ashamed. Because our concern is not appearance. Our concern is not what people think. Our concern is what the Lord thinks. Our concern was the judgment seat of Christ. Our concern is the presence of our God. Our concern is how we might be well-pleasing to Him. We're concerned not about appearance. At least not primarily concerned. Man judges by the outward appearance. That's not just a negative, that's just a reality. That's just a fact. That man does judge by the outward appearance. But the Lord judges the heart, and that's where we're to be invested. We're to be invested in the hidden man of the heart. And he uses this language that uh, seems to indicate that uh, he's just not concerned what people think about him. He's concerned about God who will judge him. He says, if we're beside ourselves, that's just the expression of we're out of our minds. If we're out of our minds, you see that in the Gospels, in Mark's Gospel, that uh, Jesus' uh, brothers, his family had come to him, and, and people were telling him, he, he's, he's beside himself, he's out of his mind, you better go take him home. You better take poor Jesus home, he's, uh, he's got a few screws loose. Uh, he's out of his mind, he's beside himself. He says, well, if we're beside ourselves, if that's what people think about us, he says, it's for God. It's for God. If they think, well, our method of ministry is to this thing or that thing or one thing or another thing, well, we're serving God. Let them think what they want. But if we're in our right mind, it is for you. Um, you know, a lot of the things perhaps that maybe seem in Paul's mind to be acceptable and excessive, if he realizes it will better serve others, well, he's willing to curb back his own native tendencies for the sake of the, of the people of God. You know, if, uh, if I was in a congregation that didn't believe that wearing a suit jacket and a tie was uh, the proper thing we're to be doing when we come to church, and there are places in the world that well, that seems to be the reality, I probably divest the suit and the tie in order to minister to them. It'll be for them that I will bring rein in my own uh, bent or my own proclivities. My proclivity would be not to wear the suit and the tie, but nonetheless. Um, you conform, as he says in the Corinthian letter in chapter 9, becoming all things to all men, that by all means he might save some. Um, but yet what do people think about him is not immaterial. It's how he can best, most effectively minister to the people of God. If they think he's a crazy man, well, okay. Before God, I'll be a crazy man. I'll be a fool for Christ, as he, has, as, as, as he, as he goes on to say. Um, but the whole reality is that it's the love of Christ, he says, that controls us. It's Christ's love that controls us. So everything we do, we do for the Lord. Everything we do, we do out of love for Christ. Everything we do, we do with the design, as he said already, to be well-pleasing unto him. And people will judge us. Well, 
He's not going to be swayed by that. I mean, what he basically is doing here is he's reiterating uh, things he's already said in, in the fourth chapter of the first letter. When uh, Paul says, and in a context, I don't have time to go into all the, 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 the various things of the context, but um, he says in the words of verse 3, he says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or in any human court. And again, you can think what you want. If you're going to write me off because you're of Apollos and you don't like me, well, whatever you think of me, that's something I can't control. That's really not my problem, that's your problem, basically. Um, in fact, I do not even judge myself. That doesn't mean he doesn't... Uh, what he's not saying here, he's not saying I don't have a concern for what people think of me. Because again, he constra- constrains himself to better minister to people when that's possible. But ultimately, you have to make a judgment. I can constrain myself till the end, till the end of time and never persuade that person to give me a hearing. So there's a point where you're going overboard to please them. But his main concern is not human court, it's the court of heaven. In fact, I do not even judge myself, and that's not a total absence of judgment upon himself, but just the final judgment is not something he renders on himself. For I am not aware of anything against myself. I'll try to judge myself as best I could, but I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me, and therefore do not pronounce judgment, at least final judgment, before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Again, we're very prone to judge on, based on the outward appearance. And have you ever been in a position where perhaps you've made a judgment about somebody and you pro- it was proven to you, you, you just misread the situation completely. That's not really what that person intended. I think my wife gave an example of a relative of ours just so overwhelmed. Uh, people in her church came and took her to lunch and said, have I, have I offended you? And they gave all sorts of things they thought were reasons that she might be offended at her. And she said, no, no, you just simply misread the situation altogether. And, you know, we feel that we, we know that that's a reality. We're not omniscient. We don't know all things about all people and why they behave the way they behave, when they behave in that way. But if we knew what was bad, what the backstory was, well, we knew what was really going on, then we wouldn't make those judgments. But again, we judge by appearance. We judge wrongly, often than, more often than not, in terms of appearance. And that's why it's always good not to make final judgments, not to make final assessments. But perhaps to go to that person and say, you know, I, mean, I might well be out of my mind, but... you may well be but when you did this, this and this I thought that you meant thus, thus and thus and then that as as women had an opportunity to clear the air with uh, this relative of ours so you'd have the opportunity to get the air cleared with them and that's going to lead to reconciliation which is uh, more Paul's theme about his ministry our time is up though we can't get there until God willing next week well hopefully something of what was said this morning has been encouraging and helpful Let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for, again, this time in your word, and we bless you for the truth that it is in Jesus. We bless you for the life-giving gospel. 
And we bless you for the reality of um, what is before us, that truly the best things are still to come for us. We pray we would live in hope. We pray that we would live with that confidence um, and that courage to uh, make it our aim every day to be well-pleasing unto you. Teach us to live in your fear, to live in your presence, knowing that it is your presence that's the great yearning of our hearts, the great desire uh, to depart and to be with Jesus. And we pray, Father, you would um, hasten the day when your glory would fill the earth, when your name will be known amongst all the nations, when the kingdom of grace will become a kingdom of glory, in which the righteous shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of our Father. We ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless us as we greet one another this morning and as we enter into the morning hour of worship. We'd ask in Jesus' name, amen.